Hello, I'm Caitlin. Hi, I'm Kerrigan. And we are two sisters who have grown up with a deep-rooted obsession with all things that go bump in the night, true crime and paranormal. What a Nightmare will discuss cases that are sure to be what nightmares are made of. So without further ado, welcome to What a Nightmare. So this nightmare takes place in 1985, Lexington, South Carolina. Imagine getting a phone call out of the blue that the unthinkable has happened and your sister has vanished out of thin air. During a time when they should have been planning for a graduation party, the Smith family was organizing a massive search for 17-year-old Cherry Smith. It was Friday, May 31st, 1985. Sherry Smith started off her day by going to vocal practice as she was selected to sing the Star Spangled Banner at her high school class graduation. Her graduation was planned for the following Sunday. At around 11.30, Sherry called her mom from the school so that they could meet at the bank in town. She was getting traveler's checks in preparation for her senior trip to the Bahamas. She also asked her mom to bring her swimsuit and a towel so that she could go to a friend's pool party. After finishing up at the bank with her mom, Sherry connected with her boyfriend Richard and her friend Brenda at a shopping center, and they left for the pool party together. Sherry called from the pool party around 2.30 to let her parents know that she was heading home soon. Sherry, her boyfriend, and Brenda rode back to the shopping center to their cars, and then they went their separate ways. Now, the Smith family lived out in the country, and they had quite a long driveway. At around 3.25, Sherry pulled in to her driveway and exited her car to go get the mail, because she, like, always did that. Uh, her, both of her parents, Hilda and Bob, they recall seeing her pull into the driveway and noticed her getting the mail. After about five minutes, Bob, her father, said that he started to feel a sense of unease, like something was wrong, because mm. he still saw the car at the end of the driveway. And it was, like, taking her... <clears throat> A little longer than usual. Yeah. And Hilda, the mom, tried to, like, ease those fears, saying, you know, she probably got a letter from her sister Dawn, who was away at college, and she's reading the letter, and she'll be down in a couple minutes. Don't worry about it. Well, he, Bob, still felt worried and was like, no, I don't feel right about it. I think something's wrong. And he headed up to the end of the driveway he was particular worried, particularly worried, um, because Sherry had a diagnosis of diabetes insipidus, <clears throat> and it's a super rare disease. Um, and although it's confusing, it's not like the diabetes that you're thinking of. It not has, like type one. Well, it's not anything to do with blood sugar and at all. So diabetes insipidus is um, about like. Uh, it is a disorder that causes major fluid imbalances within the body. Oh, okay. Um, essentially, it makes you pee a lot. Mm -hmm. um, it affects, like, your kidney's ability to 
fluctuate with fluids. Um, essentially, like I said, it makes you pee a lot, and people with this diagnosis, they are very thirsty. Like, they just can't seem to get enough water. Mm-hmm. Um, and because of the excess urination, these people are super <clears throat> high risk for dehydration. Mm-hmm. Um, they have to make sure that they're drinking lots of water and that they take their medications so that they can prevent the harmful effects. So, like I said, no blood sugar issues. You won't see any Wolford Brimley commercials about it. <laughs> um it's entirely its own thing. Yeah, so. and that's so rough to deal with at mm-hmm. the age of 17. Like, yes. And she probably dealt with it her whole life, you know? Yeah, for sure. But, um, I can't remember the exact statistic, but I want to say it was like 1 in 20,000 people. Mm-hmm. Has, it's not very common. Yeah. But um, a, a lot of even podcasts that I've heard about this case would just hear diabetes and think that it was blood sugar and yeah. they would like talk about like well she needs her insulin and <laughs> the like healthcare professional in me was like no <laughs> <laughs> so anyway when bob got to the end of the driveway he found that the car was still running um the driver's side car door was open and sherry was nowhere to be found mail was scattered on the ground around the mailbox Sherry's purse, the towel that she used at the pool party, and her medication were all still in the passenger seat. Um, her shoes were in the floorboard as well. Like, she got out barefoot, and they could see her uh, footprints mm-hmm. leading up to the mailbox, but there were none away from it. Oh, man. So, immediately, the Smiths called local authorities to report that they believed something had happened to their daughter. And given the appearance of the scene, authorities began their search for Sherry right away. They didn't try to downplay it. They didn't make her out to be a runaway, anything like that. There was no doubt in anyone's mind that something sinister happened. So at the time when this was happening, Sherry's older sister, Dawn, was out actually shopping for a graduation present for her sister, Sherry. Oh, God, that's so heartbreaking. Yeah. So, she, like I said, she was a student um, away at college. She mm-hmm. went to Columbia College in Columbia, South Carolina. And whenever Dawn got back to her apartment, her roommate told her that she needed to call her home right away and that something happened to Sherry. And I think that anyone would be in disbelief Yeah. to like be told, like, hey, something happened to your sister they don't know where she is like i couldn't imagine if that was us because like that kind of seems like around the same age gap when you were in college and i was getting ready to graduate yeah high school like exactly and like if something happened to you i don't think that it would even register in my mind until i saw for myself oh you know so um sherry packed a bag and a patrolman actually picked her up and drove her to her parents' oh, home man. in Lexington. Um, law enforcement did their routine interviews with each of the Smith family members, um, as well as Sherry's boyfriend, to get statements and begin their investigation. Questions like about what Sherry's timeline was and um, if they could offer any information, any potential leads, where to begin, right? And the community seemed to really rally behind the family. Uh, Hundreds of volunteers actually aided in the search party that same day to look for Sherry Smith. Um, At around 10.30 p.m., one of the members of the search party found the red bandana that Sherry had actually been wearing that day. 
uh, it was about a half a mile away from their home. Oh my. So Saturday came and went without any further leads, no evidence, and Sunday's graduation happened. It was apparently a very solemn event. Students and staff left an empty chair in place of Sherry, Aww. and they also joined in a silent prayer for her. Uh, however, the first real break in the case would occur in the early hours of Monday morning, late Sunday night, early Monday morning. Around 2.20 a.m., the phone rang in the Smith family home. Mr. Smith answered, and another male voice on the line said, I need to speak with Mrs. Smith. He reluctantly passed the phone over to Hilda, and the male voice on the line said that he had information to prove that he knew of the whereabouts of Sherry. He was able to give details of the clothing that she was wearing and said that they were looking in all of the wrong places. The caller also told Hilda to anticipate a letter in the mail arriving to their home, written in Sherry's handwriting, addressed to them. Then the call ended. The Smiths called the police right away. They notified them of the phone call, and they were able to trace the phone call to a payphone outside of a local grocery store. The sheriff, James Metz, also notified the postmaster and was able to get access into the post office, and they began sifting through letters in search of this letter. They did find it. It took mm -hmm. several hours, and they found the letter simply addressed to the Smith family. Inside the envelope were two yellow legal pad pages written in ha uh, Sherry's handwriting. On the side of the first page, Sherry wrote, God is love. And at the top was the date 6-1-85, a.m. with the title, Last Will and Testament. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, so, God. That, that is... I couldn't. I could not. Yeah. Like, I'd lose my crap. <laughs> uh-huh. And it only gets worse. So, I have the letter. <clears throat> It says, I love you, Mommy, Daddy, Robert, Don, and Richard, and everyone else, and all other friends and relatives. I'll be with my father now, so please, please don't worry. Just remember my witty personality and great special times that we all shared together. Please don't ever let this ruin your lives. Just keep living one day at a time for Jesus. Some good will come of this. My thoughts will always be with you and in you. And in parentheses, casket closed. I love you all so damn much. Sorry, Dad, I had to cuss just for once. Jesus, forgive me. Richard, sweetie, I really did and always will love you and treasure our special moments. I ask one thing, though. Accept Jesus as your personal savior. My family has been the greatest influence in my life. I'm sorry about the cruise money. Someone please go in my place. I'm sorry if I ever disappointed you in any way. I only wanted to make you proud of me because I have always been proud of my family. Mom, Dad, Robert, and Dawn, there's so much I want to say to you that I should have said before now. I love you. I know y'all love me and that you will miss me very much, but if you'll stick together like we always did, y'all can do it. Please do not become hard or upset. Everything works out for the good for those that serve the Lord. All my love always, I love y'all with all my heart. Sharon Sherry Smith. P.S. Nana. 
I love you so much. I always kind of felt like your favorite. You were mine. I love you a lot. Oh, my God. Literally so gut-wrenching. Yeah, and she sounds like such an amazing young woman. Mm -hmm. Like, for her to be 17 and, like... Thinking of all those things. And, and, like, just the way she's, like... I don't know. Like, the way she wrote it, it just seems so mature and, Mm -hmm. like, she's accepting this this fate yeah it's just it, so sad i literally 17. said the same thing i said the way that the letter reads it sounds like she's accepted her fate and i think that it's just such a window into the kind of person that she is mm-hmm. that in this obviously dark time she's thinking of others she's mm-hmm. thinking about it's gonna break their heart and the money yeah like forget the money i know and somebody go in my place and i'm like honey no no <laughs> I mean, like, I get your point, but, like, nobody's going to have fun on that cruise now. Like, like, who cares? Yeah, like, that does not matter. No. Like, so, anyway, there's a book on this case that I used as a pretty big reference. Uh, It's written by John Douglas, the, the FBI agent that is behind Mindhunter, Oh, like okay. whenever you think of criminal profiling, this is who you're thinking of. Yeah, he is the OG. He incredible, awesome guy. So in his book, uh, when a killer calls about this case, because you know, side note, he gets pulled into this case and he investigates it. In his book, he quotes Ernest Hemingway in regards to Sherry and her letter, mm-hmm. and says. Ernest Hemingway defines courage as grace under pressure, and I couldn't think of a more profound example. Oh my god. Oh, I got the chills. I thought that that was so beautiful. It's so fitting. Yeah. Just very, very well said. Man, this is just so, like, tragically sad. Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, like, any crime case is, like, but, like, it's just, oh, like, yeah. Hits you right in the feels, and yeah. it only gets worse. <laughs> Great. I can't Buckle wait. <laughs> I can't wait. <laughs> Buckle up. Oh. So this letter was photographed and immediately sent to forensics for analysis. Unfortunately, there were no fingerprints from the kidnapper on the letter, the envelope, but the letter was sent to be analyzed with an electrostatic detection apparatus. It's a tool used to detect indentations in paper. So, so because say that five times fast, <laughs> can't do. It. Um, it it kind of acts like a reverse printing press, mm-hmm. um, where this paper came from a yellow legal pad. It could be assumed that other things had been written, and you would be able to see those indentations yeah. from the previous pages. Um, they apply this like saran wrap looking thing across the letter and they'll pour graphite over it and it takes a long time and they just, mm-hmm. a time that they didn't have, right? Yeah. So after the letter was found the and the FBI was called, they became part of the investigation. The Smith family and the sheriffs also decided to address the media and presumably address the kidnapper themselves. They announced that there was a $15,000 reward for any information that led to Sherry or her kidnapper. 
And they also stated, the search is not going to stop as long as there's hope. And maybe this got the attention of the man responsible because at 3.08 p.m. that same Monday afternoon, the phone rang again. Dawn Smith answered the phone and a male voice asked to speak with her mother. And uh, like, this is the transcript once Hilda gets the Mm -hmm. phone. He says, have you received the mail today? Yes, I have. Do you believe me now? Well, I'm not really sure I believe you because I haven't had any word from Sherry and I need to know that Sherry is well. He says, you'll know in two or three days. She's like, why, why two or three days? And he says, call the search off. She says, well, tell me if she's well because of her disease. Are you taking care of her? Click. Oh my. They were able to trace the phone call to another payphone. This time it was at the same shopping center that Sherry was at before disappearing. Oh, and that kind of makes you wonder, like, how long was he stalking her, maybe? Mm -hmm. Like, was he there earlier that day when she met with her boyfriend and her friend? Like, yeah. Hmm. Who knows? So then again, shortly after 8 p.m., the same day, Dawn answers the phone again, and the man recognized her voice, and he says, Dawn? And she says, yes. And he says, did you come down from Charlotte? She said, yes, I did. Who's calling, please? And he just says, I need to speak to your mom. So she goes and she gets her mom. And while she's on the phone, like trying to get her mom to come over and take the phone, he asks Dawn, did you receive her letter today? And she is just like, yep, I did. Here's my mom. She passes the phone. Hilda says... Like, this is Hilda. He said, did you read Sherry Ray's letter? That's not her middle name. Mm -hmm. He misspoke. It is Sherry Fay. She said, yes, I did. And he says, okay, prove it. Tell me one thing it says. And she says, sure, Richard. I guess that on, like, the side of one of the pages, there was, like, a combination of Sherry and Richard's names with, like, a little heart. Mm -hmm. And that was like their little Benefer or whatever. Like, like when the, you, you yeah, put your names combined. together. Because <laughs> you're just so in, in love. love. Yeah. <laughs> so he like completely like disregards it and just says, how many pages were there? She says two. And he says, okay. And it was on a yellow legal pad. Yep. And on one side it said, Jesus is love. And she goes, no, it said, God is love. He says, right, right. So you know that this is a hoax call. And she said, yes, I know that. Then he starts to complain about why haven't you called the search off yet? Mama Bear Hilda was not having any of that. She tries to appeal to his senses, his ego, and starts saying, can you answer me one question? You're a very kind person. You seem to be really compassionate. I think that you know how I would feel as Sherry's mom that, and how much I love her. Can you tell me, is she physically all right without her medication? He says, yeah, Sherry's drinking over two gallons of water per hour. She's using the bathroom. That's a lot, yeah. by the way. Like, I mean, I can barely get a gallon of water in in a day, let alone yeah. two in an hour. Jeez. So anyway, he goes on to say to Hilda, 
you need to have an ambulance ready at any given time at your house. He also starts to address in Sherry's letters the parentheses, casket closed. And he says, and when she said casket closed, if anything happens to me, she said, one of the requests was that she wanted her hands to be laid in a praying position. And maybe he realized that he was taking too much time on the phone because he started to sound more frantic. He started to rush the call, said that he told them that they were looking in all the wrong places. They needed to stop looking in Lexington County and look in nearby Saluda County. Then he said the most chilling thing. I want to tell you one other thing. Sherry is now part of me. Physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually, our souls are now one. Ooh. He tries to make it seem like they had some type of relationship. And Hilda, once again, mustering all her strength, says, Listen, you tell Sherry one thing. There's no way my life could have any happiness in it again if Sherry left this world. Not with me bearing a guilt that I had failed in such a bad way because I love her and I want to make her happy. I'll do anything to work it out. She does not have to come home. So she's like saying like, as long as she's alive and she's happy and healthy, that's all I care about. Yeah. So the man on the other end of the line simply just responded, time's up, have an ambulance ready, have a good night. And once again, he's gone. On Tuesday, the Smiths were interviewed pleading for Sherry's return in hopes that Sherry or her kidnapper would see it. Don even said, we're not a family without you. The reward was also announced to have been increased to $25,000 at this time. Later that night, the taunting continued with another phone call. This time, he instructed both Don and Hilda to be on the phone at the same time, and he wanted them to write down what he was going to say. He indicated that he was not demanding for any money, emphasized again about his and Sherry's souls being one, and then he started to give a timeline of Sherry's disappearance. 3.28 in the afternoon, Sherry Fay was kidnapped from your mailbox. 3.10 a.m., the 1st of June, she handwrote the letter that you received. 4.58 a.m., became one soul. Prayers and release coming soon. Please learn to enjoy life. Forgive. God protects the chosen. Sherry Fay's important request. Rest tonight and tomorrow. Good shall come of this. And tell Sheriff Metz to search no more. Blessings are near. Remember, tomorrow, Wednesday, 4 in the afternoon to 7 in the evening, ambulance ready. No circus. You will receive last instructions for where to find us. Please forgive. Hilda then cried out, do not kill my daughter, please. The caller responded with a very scripted response and said, we love and miss y'all. Get good rest tonight. Good night. The authorities were able to trace that call to another payphone outside of a convenience store about nine miles from the Smith home. And around this time, I don't know, like, how, how much surveillance, like, these stores had, but you would think there would be something. something. Like, it's a, it's a it's local... It's the 80s of it all. I know, but, like, yeah, they had cameras in the 80s? I know. Like, I know. Rural areas, you know. Yeah. But anyway, just like before, this caller 
left no evidence. So it's entirely possible, too, that he, like, scoped out the areas and was looking for cameras. He seems very, like... Methodical. Yes. Yeah. Everything he does is for a reason, and he's thought out every step. Yeah. Every single one. No fingerprints. Nothing is left behind. He is very calculated. Yeah. Right? So, like, it's just crazy to me also how close proximity he was to them at yeah. all times. Like, that in and of itself feels like a taunt. Mm-hmm. Because it's like, I'm, I'm right here. Right here. Yeah. I right here. I, I am a member time. of your community, probably. Like, yeah. I have been around for a long time. Mm-hmm. Like, that's kind of what it feels like. Yeah. That he's probably known this family and this girl for a while. Who knows? Yeah. yeah. It's a literal game of cat and mouse. Yeah. So at 11.54 a.m. on Wednesday, this man calls the Smith home again. Hilda answers, and the caller began giving very specific directions. He said, listen carefully. Take Highway 378 West to Traffic Circle. Take Prosperity Exit. Go one and a half miles. Turn right at sign. Masonic Lodge number 103. Go one quarter miles, turn left at White Frame Building. Go to backyard, six feet beyond. We are waiting. God chose us. The Smith family begged authorities to allow them to go to this location, but police convinced them that it would potentially interfere with the investigation. Mm -hmm. I think that it's mostly because they knew what they were going to find. Just with the way that it was said, like, I wouldn't. Oh, yeah. They, they would not want them to see something. This that sounds they like can, a, a complete murder suicide. Something like, like that. Like mission. Yes. yes. Um, so, investigators, they, they followed the directions exactly as the caller had described them. It led them 16 miles west of the Smith family home to the body of Sherry Smith. Her body was severely decomposed. And that was, like, exacerbated by the heat, the insect infestation. Um, Mind you, like, this is the first, like, the the beginning of June. Yeah. So, and it's South Carolina. It's hot. Given the evidence, the state of her decomp, authorities estimated that the time of her death was in the early hours of Saturday morning. So she's been dead this whole time. Yeah. They believed that she probably died shortly after writing her last will and testament letter. So, like, this douchebag's giving them all the hope in the world, saying, like, yeah, she's drinking plenty of water. She's peeing all the time. She's doing just fine. (laughs) And that just makes it even worse. Yeah, it makes it very infuriating. Like, obviously not that I would expect him to be honest. An upstanding citizen. Yeah, but, I mean, just, oh, that's just such a disgusting thing to do Mm -hmm. like you're already taking away someone's child Mm -hmm. like she is a child she's 17 years old like but let me give you hope and then just destroy it yeah just for shits and and giggles and for her body to be like Mm -hmm. discarded that way and yep it's oh what a piece of shit (laughs) so when police returned to the smith home the family said that they could tell by the sound of their footsteps just how slow that they were coming up to the door. Mm-hmm. They knew right away that Sherry was gone. And I just can't imagine the heartbreak and that devastation. 
to be holding on to hope against all odds, Mm -hmm. like we said, just to have it completely taken away by this monster. The family arranged for her funeral to be scheduled and planned for a day that would allow the students that did go on the senior class trip Mm -hmm. to be able to attend her funeral. So once again, in all of this like heartache and devastation, this family's thinking of others. Yeah. They are still thinking of like, well, her friends are going to want to be there. And rather than being so consumed by their own grief, they are still thinking of other people. Like, this family's strength is wild. Yeah. It's crazy. Like, very admirable. That's mm-hmm. just so much. And, like, oh, it just, I can't. I, I, <laughs> I This is a lot. Yeah. So, after a news conference on Thursday where Sheriff Metz addressed the media concerning Sherry's murder, confirming that they had found her, a local investigative reporter named Charlie Keyes receives a phone call from a anonymous male caller. And he made a lot of similar phrases like uh, whenever he would call Hilda and Dawn and say, listen carefully and telling them to hurry. And just those like buzzwords were really mm-hmm. like, okay, this sounds like it's our guy. It sounds like the same guy. The caller described the last will and testament letter to establish that he was in fact the killer. He told Charlie how things just got out of hand. He claimed that he was remorseful, that all he wanted to do was make love to her. Gag. Yeah. And it's the wonder of, you know, when she died, if he held on to her body to perform things. Things, yeah. Yeah. And, and like, that, ugh. Because the way he had said multiple times of the, we are one now, like, we are one soul, mind, body, all this crap, mm-hmm. like, it it really seems like that would be something. Yeah. I just... He later on, like, tries to say that they made love, like, three times the night that he kidnapped her. And just going on the record here, that's not making love, That's Bucko. rape. Yeah, that is disgusting. So, anyway... He also told Charlie to please make sure that the Smith family followed Sherry's requests to have her hands in a prayer position in the casket with the casket closed. Later that evening, the caller phoned the Smith household again, requesting this time to speak to Dawn. So after getting Dawn on the phone, he began to tell her that he was going to turn himself in, that he was remorseful, that this is what Sherry wanted. Then he misspoke and said something that later would change the whole angle of how they went after this guy. Mm -hmm. He says, things just got out of hand and all I wanted to do was make love to Dawn. I've been watching her for a couple of weeks. Dawn interrupted and says, to who? And he corrects himself and he says, I'm so sorry, to Sherry. I made love to Sherry and I've been watching her for a couple of weeks. It just got out of hand. And Dawn, I hope you and your family can forgive me for this. Detectives believed that that was like a Freudian slip of sorts. Mm -hmm. That he was drawn to them both because like they looked very much alike. They're sisters, blonde hair, blue-eyed beauties. And Dawn wasn't accessible at the time she was away at college. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And now that she's been in the media speaking to of her sister. Yeah, like, you know, like she's been recorded... For the news and all of these outlets probably was in the newspaper things like that puts dawn at danger now yes 
So the caller then shifts gears and starts to discuss how Sherry was not afraid at all, says that she didn't cry or nothing. He told her how Sherry knew that she was going to go to heaven and be an angel. He then asked Dawn if she would be able to handle it if he told her how Sherry died. I don't know how anybody could handle that, but yeah. she says that she wants him to tell her more. Yeah. He starts saying how he's a family friend and told her that they made love the night that she was abducted, told her, told Dawn that he tied Sherry to his bedposts with electrical cords and wrapped duct tape around her head to suffocate her. This was consistent with the with autopsy the, of Sherry. I was going to ask. Yeah. And once again, the phone call was traced to a different payphone and the caller left absolutely no evidence behind. He had eluded police again. More than a thousand people attended Sherry Faye's funeral. The church was overflowing, her casket was closed and adorned with pink flowers. Police monitored uh, close by to keep eyes for any suspicious activity. Oh, yeah, like, mm -hmm. but because oftentimes these people will, will go, go they back. want to go so that they can relive yeah. and get like a contact high of the devastation that they've created. Later the evening after the funeral, the man called the home again and claimed that he was in attendance at the funeral and that a policeman had even told him where to park. And if you recall, police had been recruited to the investigation at this oh. point. And our main man, Mr. Mindhunter himself, assisted with the creation of a criminal profile of this guy. Mm -hmm. With the evidence, the recordings, all at their disposal, they were able to come up with a complete profile. They believed him to be a white man in his late 20s, early 30s, single. They believed that he probably had a failed marriage, above average intelligence, most likely lived with his parents, may have had some sort of short stint in the military. They believed that he has some prior record of assaulting women in some way that, whether it be sexual assault, peeping through windows, yeah. harassing phone calls, something of the like. Harassment nonetheless. It definitely, like, would seem like there's going to be a, a history of stalking. Yeah. Like, to get to this level. Yeah. For sure. Um, they believed that he was also some type of blue-collar day laborer, something with, that allows for flexible hours, uh, something that has to do with electrical contracting, because they were able to tell with his phone calls he was distorting his voice somehow. Um, that he had some knowledge of how to do that. They believed that he would be asocial, obsessive-compulsive, with poor self-esteem. So this is the kind of guy who identifies himself as being unattractive, overweight, thinks that he would never be able to get a girl like Sherry by any conventional means. Mm -hmm. He does this to feel powerful. They think that he has to be a local man because he knows the area, and they believe that in his home, they would find porn, specifically bondage and sadomasochism. Lastly, they knew that if he was going to escalate to kill once, he was going to do it again. Yeah. On June 14th, just two weeks almost to the hour of Sherry Smith's abduction, nine-year-old Deborah May Helmick was playing in the front yard of her home with her three-year-old brother. Around 3.30 in the afternoon, a neighbor recalls hearing some commotion outside. 
looked out the window to see a white man step out of a car, grab a little girl by the waist, put her in the back of his car, and drove off. The neighbor notified the Helmix of what had just happened, and they found the three-year-old boy trembling with fear in a nearby bush. Oh my god. Yeah. Oh, that poor little boy. Deborah May's father, Sherwood Helmick, he rushed to his car and starts to like drive after looking for his daughter. While like looking for her, found a cop car, stopped him, and let them know what had happened, and the search began. The Helmicks lived a little over 20 miles from the Smith family. Law enforcement wasn't sure at this time. Are they connected? There's an age difference, obviously. Here. Yeah. Nine-year-old, 17-year-old. There's, there's a difference in the victims. Uh-huh. No. But they weren't ruling it out yet. Yeah. Naturally, the community's in an uproar. No one felt safe. These two disappearances occurred when the victims were doing entirely normal day-to-day things. Mm-hmm. Like, they're in, they're, they were both in their own yards for christ's sake like yeah how violating how violating and like you should have been safe yeah right like you were i mean i i stop and get my mail all the time like i am out in the front yard with the dogs every day like it's just so crazy Mm -hmm. like so police and fbi agents together they formulate a plan to try to pull him from hiding They decided to play on the similar appearance that Don had with Sherry and this, like, clear obsession that he had formed between Hilda and Don. Don was all in. If there was any way that she could help bring this man to justice, she was going to do it, especially with a little girl's life in the balance. She's like, I'm going to do whatever I can to help. That's pretty brave of her, too. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, dealing with that grief, but still wanting to make sure it doesn't to save someone else from going through what she's going through so the plan was to hold this highly publicized memorial event dawn was essentially going to be used as bait to place a tiny koala like the mascot for the college that sherry was going to go to the same college that dawn was at visit the grave and place the flowers in the koala so they they believed that if he saw this like information about it or if he saw the memorial then he will use it yeah Yeah. he would not be able to just let it go and don recalls this time describing it as i felt like it was my job my responsibility my assignment place the koala do this do that be this way do what you have to do in order to get this to come to an end to catch this man for the nightmare to end with some hesitation, Bob and Hilda, they, they did agree to the plan, and a date was set. Tuesday, June 25th, what would have been Sherry's 18th birthday. Oh. So in the days leading up to that event, the media's spiraling, they're spreading the word. At this point, it's been two weeks since anyone has received a phone call from Sherry's killer. One week since the disappearance of Deborah May Helmick. The announcement of the memorial did exactly what it was intended, and at 12.17 a.m. on the Saturday morning before the memorial, the Smiths received a phone call, and the taunting continued. Don answered the phone, and he began with similar statements of, this is not a hoax, so on and so forth, and then the taunting turned to threat. He said, you know, God wants you to join Sherry Fay this month, next month, this year, next year. You can't be protected all the time. You know that helmet girl? Have you heard about that helmet girl? 
And Don confirmed that she had, and he says, listen carefully. Go one north, well, one west. Turn left at Peach Festival Road, or Bill's Grill. Go three and a half miles through Gilbert, turn right, last dirt road before you come to a stop sign at Two Notch Road. Go through chain and no trespassing sign. Go 50 yards and to the left, go 10 yards. Deborah May is waiting. God forgive us all. Don tried to keep him from talking. Uh, I'm sorry, she tried to keep him talking. Keep him. Yeah. And uh, tried to giving up like more information about himself. Like she asked how old he was and he just completely ignored it. And he says, Don, your time's near. God forgive us and protect us all. Good night for now, Don E. Smith. And he clearly was like getting off on this fear that he had over the family. He was getting ballsier. He was escalating. Police rushed to the site, following the directions given by the man. And they all knew what they were going to find. Yeah. They found Deborah May's body exactly where he said. Just like Sherry, her body was severely decomposed by the combination of the heat and the, evi- the environment. And as with Sherry, the cause of death was determined to be suffocation. This was the confirmation that the authorities needed to now be able to say, like, this man is responsible for two abductions and two murders, and he continued to escape capture. On what would have been Sherry's 18th birthday, they went ahead with the plan for the memorial. Dawn was filmed placing the koala and the flowers on Sherry's grave, and FBI and local officers watched nearby, scanning the crowd. This was the first time that the Smith family had been back to the gravesite since the funeral. Despite the fact that it was a staged event, it still seemed very emotional and touching, cathartic even. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Smiths spoke of their grief, their love of Sherry, their reliance on their faith. Deborah May Helmick's funeral was held the following day, Wednesday, June 26th, with a large police presence. There were close to 300 people in the church for her ceremony. Among those in attendance, the Smith family came uh, to show their support and pay for like pay their respects. Because like if anybody could relate to the pain that the Helmicks were going through, it's, it's the, Smiths. the Smiths. Yeah. And although this day was obviously gut wrenching and terrible, it's also the most important day of the investigation so far because the South Carolina Law Enforcement Division notified agents that the results from that ESDA machine that I told you about at the beginning, Mm -hmm. they got the results and they were able to detect indentations in the paper. They made out a nine number sequence of a 10 number sequence. They couldn't quite tell what that like other number was. The number was 205-837-13, some undetected number, eight. Didn't take a genius to figure out, this is probably a phone number. Mm-hmm. They found out that 205 was an area code from Alabama, 837 located in the Huntsville area. Investigators then cross-checked the possible remaining numbers with any calls that could have been to the Lexington, South Carolina area. They were able to detect that one of those possible numbers had been calling the nearby Lexington area. And it was about 15 miles away from the Smith house. Authorities called that phone number rather than bringing up the murders right away. They simply just asked, do you know anybody in the state of South Carolina? The man that answered says, yeah, my parents live right on the lake in Saluda County. That their names were Ellis and Sharon Shepard. Their son was stationed at an army base in 
Huntsville area. And he, they were quickly ruled out as suspects, but we're getting there. So authorities arrived to Ellis and Sharon Shepard's house that same evening as Deborah May's funeral. Upon their arrival, the Shepherds were very cooperative, friendly, hospitable. They did not fit the profile at all. Mm-hmm. The only possible connection that they had was that Ellis was an electrician. Mm-hmm. Um, and they also had just returned back from vacation. Uh, they they travel quite a bit. Uh, they were actually traveling when the both of the abductions took place. Like they they were on vacation, came home for a little bit, and then they went on another trip and yeah. came home right after. So, and that alibi was easily traced and confirmed. Mm-hmm. Um, so law enforcement went over the profile, discussing potential characteristics with the shepherds in attempt to gain any other leads. The couple looked at each other and simultaneously replied that it sounds eerily like the man that had been watching their house while they were on their trips. Like a house sitter? Uh, Yeah. Larry Jean Bell. Bell was 36 years old. He had been working for Ellis as an electrician assistant. And the shepherds reported that Bell picked them up from the airport when they had returned back to the area at the beginning of June, right, like, after Sherry had disappeared. Mm-hmm. Um, they said that the whole drive back, he was talking about Sherry, the disappearance, and he was the one to tell them also when Sherry's body had been found. He just seemed very engrossed in this investigation. Mm-hmm. Every time they would try to change the subject, Larry Jean Bell would find a way to bring the conversation back to it. They said that he just seemed obsessed and wanted to discuss morbid possibilities of what the killer might have done to Sherry. It was unnerving. Ellis also informed that he had told Bell where he kept his handgun for protection in the home because he was house-sitting, right? Yeah. Well, when Ellis got home, he found that his thirty-eight pistol was missing. Ellis had called Larry Jean Bell and asked about the handgun, and to his surprise, Bell actually was like, yeah, yeah, I have it with me. Sorry about that. Like, I'll give it back to you tomorrow. No problem. And the next day, Ellis went to Larry Jean Bell's house, and he flips up his mattress, and it's underneath his mattress, and he goes to hand it to him, and he said that he looked down, and it was also next to a stack of magazines, that had a blonde woman in bondage in like a cruciform position. Uh. So like this nailed the profile, right? Yeah. Like it's just checking a whole lot of boxes. And despite like the profile connection, investigators needed a little bit more to be able to say, yes, this is yeah, the guy. To make the arrest. Mm-hmm. So they brought Ellis and Sharon into the police department and they played them the recordings of the phone calls that he had been making to the Smith home. They both gasped, Sharon began to cry, and on the record they said, that's Larry Jean Bell, no doubt about it. The more investigators learned of Larry Jean Bell, the more convinced they were that this guy is who they've been searching for. Shortly after graduating high school, he married a 16-year-old blonde-haired, blue-eyed girl. Bell had been in the Marine Corps, but that didn't last very long. It was less than a year because he accidentally shot himself in the knee while cleaning his weapon. (laughs) Uh, He took a job as a prison guard at the South Carolina Department of Corrections, but that only lasted about a month. A few years after that, 
He was arrested for assault and battery charges after trying to abduct a woman at knife point when she refused to go with him to Charlotte and party. Thankfully, the woman was able to fight him off and attract attention. They were in a public place and police caught him right away. He pled guilty to those charges and was sentenced to five years in prison and fined $1,000. But because the justice system, especially in the 70s, was an absolute joke. His prison sentence was suspended on condition of payment of the fine and converted to probation. His marriage ended about a year later. To no one's surprise, only eight months after his previous offense, while helping a woman who had slipped and fallen, he said that he was armed, showed off a handgun, and attempted to force her into his car. What a gentleman, right? This woman also fought and she managed to get away. Just as before, he was identified, police took him in, he pled guilty to the similar charges. His probation was revoked and an additional five years in prison was added. He ended up only serving two years despite a psychiatric evaluation that determined that he was at high risk of being a repeat offender. In 1979, Bell was convicted of making obscene phone calls to a 10-year-old little girl in Charlotte, North Carolina. Despite being caught, arrested, and pleading guilty for these phone calls, Bell did not get any additional jail time for this. Just more probation, because, you know, that's worked so well this far. After reviewing all of this history, the evidence at hand, the local district attorney, Donald Myers, felt confident that they had enough material. Upon presentation to Judge Leroy Stabler, an arrest warrant was issued for Larry Jean Bell. At 7.30 p.m. on June 27, 1985, Larry Jean Bell was stopped in a roadblock and arrested without incident. Upon booking, Bell was placed in an interrogation room that had been staged with, like, several stacks of folders, making him think, you know, like, they got me. Yeah. And that's exactly what it was. It was to put pressure on him to let them know, like, we gotcha. Um... Bell had tried to cling to this alibi that he was taking his mother to a doctor's appointment in Columbia on the day that Sherry disappeared. He also started to refer to himself in third person, making statements like, I know for a fact that Larry Jean Bell did not do this. And all I know is, for a fact, me sitting here, Larry Jean Bell could not have done such a bad thing. It was just very weird like and bizarre. personality disorder there? Like- I think that that is what he was trying to... Convey, yeah, so that he can plead for sanity. Yes, and these behaviors continue and worsen. You'll see. <laughs> Makes my eye twitch. <laughs> yep. Uh, a warrant was also issued to search his home, and like the profile had predicted, he was very OCD, tidy, and while searching, they found a written set of directions to the sites where Sherry and Deborah May Helmick's body were found. Uh, They found strands of Sherry's hair. They found more porn depicting bondage scenes. And, like, just to be clear, I'm not saying that porn caused him to do these bad things. Yeah, or bondage. Yeah. You know, that's... that's... Like what you like, do what you do, as long as it's with a consenting adult. Yes. So, anyway. After hours of interrogation, Bell continued to maintain his innocence until the FBI came in with the assist. Bell was, like, pelted with more questions, and it wasn't until he was asked, at what point did you start to feel bad about the crime? And Bell responded, when I saw a photo of the family praying at the cemetery on Sherry's birthday. Mic drop. 
So Bell was asked how he felt about it now, and he referred to himself in the third person again, saying, this Larry Jean Bell could not have done such a bad thing, but there is a bad Larry Jean Bell that could have. Oh, again, like, that's just... Yeah, infuriating. Manipulative. Manipulative, exactly. Well, the bad Larry Jean Bell decided that he was not being done being so manipulative. Yeah. He, at that moment, asked to meet Hilda and Don. Oh, fuck off. And, yeah, <laughs> they agreed. So when Bell was brought in, his fearful demeanor just, like, completely went away. He walked in, he saw Hilda and Don sitting at the table, and then he just sat upright like he was carrying out a meeting. He knew that he had all the power in this moment. And Don, being the baddie that she is, called his bluff and said, I recognize your voice. I know it's you. Do you recognize my voice? And he said, I recognize your face from TV, your picture from the newspaper. It's just the bad side of me that caused all this destruction. It's just something in me. The Smith women continued to just verbally spar with him and to further show how mentally and spiritually strong these girls are, Hilda got the final blow and she looked him in the eye and said, even though I sit this close to you, I look at you, I know that you're the man that called my house. I don't hate you. There's not enough room in my heart for that pain. Oh my god. Yeah, like I'm in such awe of their courage, their strength, yeah, their they, sheer grace. They are badass. Yeah. Like, like I don't think I would have, I would have like been, I would have been psychotic. They would have mm -hmm. like put me in a mental institution. Yeah. Like how can you go through such an unimaginable, tra unimaginable tragedy and still maintain that level of composure? Oh yeah. And like any other person would have crumbled and it would have been understandable. So later that evening, LGB lawyered up with a criminal defense attorney that had been hired by the Bell's family, and it didn't take long for people to come out of the woodwork starting to speak on his character, saying like he was laughing, he was smiling, he was a good guy, he wouldn't do this. And it really made me think of that like clip from like the John Gotti case where like they're interviewing people on the street and the guy's like, he was the best guy around. <laughs> And the interview's like, what mur What about the people that he murdered? What murder? <laughs> <laughs> On Tuesday, July 23rd, 1985, Bell was officially charged with the murder of Sherry Smith. And on August 2nd, he was charged with the murder of Deborah May Helmick. On Monday, August 12th, a grand jury in Saluda County determined that if found guilty, he would be eligible for the death penalty. So, in South Carolina, in order to receive the death penalty, it has to be a unanimous vote. And, like, I'm kind of wishy-washy when it comes to the death penalty. Like, sometimes I'm like, yeah, get him. <laughs> but then there are other times that I'm like, man, like, they should have to suffer for their entire yeah. existence. Yeah. Like, this just feels like an easy way their, out. Their quick death does mm -hmm. not amount to the pain that they caused. Yeah. Uh, exactly. You know, other other victims and families like it just it's not the same yeah so anyway um the, given the publicity that this case has already received it's a small town 
they determined that in order for it to be a fair trial, it's going to have to be moved somewhere else. So they moved it to Berkeley County Courthouse, about 100 miles away. The jury was selected, LGB was denied bail, and a trial date was set for January 27th, 1986. When the trial began, Sherry's friend Brenda, her boyfriend Richard, and all of her family took the stand as witnesses. They played the recorded phone calls for the jury, all except for one. And I'll get to which one. Um, they, they said that uh, the phone call where he threatens Dawn, mm-hmm. saying, like, Sherry wants you to join her, they, they felt that it would blur the, the jury's... Um, like, they wouldn't be able to make a good, clean-cut decision, right? Yeah. Like, in order for him to maintain, like, his legal presumption of innocence, that would need to be admitted. Yeah. And, like, I get it. I do. But at the same time, it's so frustrating when pieces of evidence like that that are so damning. And so are... important. I mean, mm-hmm. like, you're you're gonna completely, like not have that evidence there but that's just going to show that he's even more capable of doing it again yeah he's making these threats he mm-hmm. you know he wants to do it exactly and he even said it doesn't matter if it's today tomorrow next week next year it's going it's going to happen yeah and and like to play devil's advocate here like because like i said the more i thought about it, the more i got it of like say that this was the wrong guy Mm-hmm. death penalty is on the table here so like this is going to create high emotions and they need to they present what they have as fairly as possible yeah that's a heavy hitter and so i, I get it i do because like say for whatever reason like this is the wrong man you could potentially sentence an innocent man to die. And, like, yeah. They eventually are able to hear it. Yeah. So, Ellis and Sharon Shepard also took the stand to describe the interactions that they had with Larry Jean Bell in the days after Sherry's disappearance, talking about the conversations that he had, his clear obsession, that um, he would say, do you think that Sherry's family would want her body back? And... They also testified on the stand that the voice on the recordings was that of Larry Jean Bell. Forensic specialists were called to the stand as expert witnesses to go over their findings with like the ESDA machine. They described how it worked, and they also discussed the forensic findings that were found in not just Bell's home, but the Shepherd's home as well, like her hair. They found uh, Sherry's blood on a pair of Bell's shoes. Like, the evidence was pretty stacked here, right? Throughout the whole trial, Bell had multiple outbursts. When he took the stand, he refused to sit down, saying, well, this is how they did it in the 19th century. (laughs) And uh, he would make statements playing victim, likening himself to Sherry. He would veer off topic during questioning. He would also wave at people in the courtroom. (laughs) And his attorney even looked at him and was like, what the hell do you think you are, a maitre d'? <laughs> um, at one point, uh, to provide insight to Bell's psychiatric history, some psychiatrists were brought in. Mm-hmm. And one of them starts talking about his diagnosis as a sadistic sexual deviant. 
that Doc was literally there as part of his defense. And Larry Jean Bell stands up and says, if y'all believe that, Mona Lisa's a man. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Oh, boy. Like, he just would have these bizarre outbursts. Um, At another point, when Bell was brought on to the stand himself, he was asked how old he was, and he started responding with, silence is golden. He would continue to say this anytime a question was asked that he did not feel like answering. He was, like, asked again, how old are you? Like, that's not what I said. Yeah. And he said, 37, but continues to say, I'll start tomorrow. I'm confused today. Tomorrow I'll be 100% better. And then he turned to the press and said, I'm so confused. Ain't we having fun? Manipulative asshole. Yeah. When he was asked if he knew how Sherry Smith was taken, silence is golden. When asked about his statements that he made saying that God gave him visions about the girls, silence is golden. When asked if he remembered telling police that he saw Sherry Smith at the post office on the day of her disappearance, silence is golden. I'm not crossing that line. Not again, buddy boy. Can't imagine how frustrating it must have been trying to get through this whole court hearing. Whenever you have someone being so deliberately non-compliant and acting like this, these outbursts, like, that had to be frustrating for both sides, prosecution and the defense, because oh, yeah. his defense attorney had to be like, shut up. Shut up. You are just making this worse. You're making my job so much harder. <laughs> With all of the evidence presented, all witnesses have been cross-examined, closing arguments began. The prosecution felt like they had given sufficient enough proof beyond a reasonable doubt that Larry Jean Bell was guilty. Like, this was our guy. Bell sat quietly through each throughout each side's closing remarks up until his attorney said to the jurors, they have all witnessed a very mentally ill man and they needed to take that into consideration. He was a mentally ill, whacked out man that they saw on the stand. Bell shot up from his seat and said to the judge, today is the Sabbath and I think legally and in the eyes of God, it is my turn to take the witness stand. Like, bro, you had your chance. Yeah. And Judge Smith said, like, you need to be seated. And Bell persisted. Sit down. Shut down. Well, Bell didn't know when to shut up, and he starts yelling out, I've heard enough. Today is the Sabbath. The time for work is done, and it's time for play. It's time for R&R. I'm asking Don Smith to marry Larry Jean Bell. Oh, God. <laughs> Judge Smith immediately had him removed from the court and ordered that he not return until the jury had come to a final decision. On Sunday, February 23rd, after only 55 minutes of deliberation, the jury returned the verdict in the case of the state of South Carolina versus Larry Jean Bell. Count one, guilty of kidnapping. Count two, guilty of murder in the first degree of Sherry Faye Smith. Despite the earlier disruption, Bell remained silent and emotionless during this time hearing his verdict. In his sentencing hearing, Jurors finally got to hear that audio clip of uh, him giving the directions of the body of Deborah May Helmick mm-hmm. and him threatening Dawn. When Bell took the stand for this hearing, he refused to answer questions, continued his antics, proposing to and harassing Dawn. This was his stage, right? This was an act, and he was going to use every opportunity he had to be a manipulative dick. He says to the judge, 
I need to make a statement to the jury. And without hesitation, says, from the top of my head to the tip of my toes, I am lusting for Dawn Elizabeth Smith. That's the only thing I'm guilty of. And I would like her hand in matrimony. Oh my God. Could you imagine what Dawn's thinking? Like, that would make me feel so sick. Yeah. And once the trial was over, it only took the jurors a little over two hours of deliberation. Larry Jean Bell was sentenced to death for the murder of Sharon Faye Smith. Now, one would think that Larry Jean Bell would concede and fess up to his involvement in Deborah May Helmick's murder and mm-hmm. kidnapping. Not this man. Not once. Not a single time. So this was just another way that he could drag along the destruction and just pour salt into the open wounds of the Helmick family. Thankfully, this trial was relatively short and had fewer outbursts. It only took this jury about an hour to come to the decision that Bell was guilty in the kidnapping and murder of Deborah May Helmick. In his sentencing, it took jurors 67 minutes to return the same verdict, sentencing him to death for his crimes. The Smiths also attended both trials for the Helmicks, seating like themselves right behind them Aww. as support. Shortly after 1 a.m. on October 4th, 1996, Larry Jean Bell was executed by electric chair. I read that he was given the option of lethal injection or the electric chair, and he chose the electric chair. That's just wild what a weird to choice, me. right? Yeah. Um, he was officially declared dead at 1.12 a.m. For the Helmick family and the Smith family, this nightmare finally came to an end. Despite everything that happened, the Smiths wanted to keep true to what Sherry said in her letter. They would not let this ruin their lives. Bob Smith continued his work with prison ministry and served as a chaplain for the Lexington County Jail. He would hold a weekly Bible study at a boys' correctional school. Hilda ministered at a women's prison. Together, Hilda and Bob joined the board of Victims Hope of South Carolina. Victims Hope is a network that provides and allows like, comfort for the victims of violent crimes as well as their families. Sheriff Metz would sometimes even ask for Bob to accompany him when he would have to deliver news to a family that their children have been murdered. Oh. Um, in 2003, Hilda Smith unfortunately passed away after a two-year struggle with ovarian cancer. Oh, goodness. Dawn, she went on to compete and be crowned as Miss South Carolina. She did that, like, less than a year after the sentencing, like, after the court hearing. After that, she went on to compete in Miss America and was named second runner-up. She then began recording spiritual music, and on the third anniversary of Sherry's death, Dawn released a song that she had written called Sisters. Oh. In 1989... Dawn got married to a man that she later formed a ministry with, where she and her husband would sing in different churches. She would tell her story. Uh, She also wrote a book on how she found comfort within her faith during this time. And unfortunately, um, Dawn and her husband would split. Um, They did have children together, Mm -hmm. but she continued with her ministry. As for the Helmicks, Deborah May's mother and father would file for divorce. The, the loss of their daughter just tore them oh. apart. And um, Deborah May's mother, um, her name was also Deborah, uh, she would go on to remarry. Uh, her father, Sherwood Helmick, unfortunately passed away in 2021 at the age of 67. 
Uh, Deborah May's little sister, Becky, gave birth to a baby girl in 1997 that she named Deborah. Oh, that's just I, I really sad, couldn't like... find much information on the Helmix. Like, there's just not nearly as much about yeah. them as what there was with the Smiths. And I hate that. Like, I want to, like, you know... But maybe that's something of their choice, That might be what too, they wanted. Yeah. Of not wanting to be in the spotlight. Not that, not the, that the Smiths, Smiths did, did. But, but like... I think, I think they, also because she's older, there was more. They were able to find more yeah. on them, but I don't know. I I just hope that the Helmics, as well as the Smiths, um, that they were able to find meaning and to be able to find comfort somehow uh, when both of their family members passed, you know, to give a greater meaning but, uh, yeah, that's the story of the tragic deaths of Sherry Smith and Deborah May Helmick. That's, that's all I got. That's a very tragic one. Like, I mean, they're all tragic, but... They're heavy, heavy, it, heavy. It was. It's, it's a lot of information. It's a lot of devastation. Like, I just, I couldn't imagine, like, if that were you and I. Yeah, it would be hard. And I, I mean, if that ever... Don't even. I, I know. <laughs> if it ever did happen, I would hope that, like, if it were me, that you would have as much strength as Dawn. Yeah. Well, that's not going to happen. So, <laughs> anyway, I, I hope that even though this was a really long story, that, that you enjoyed it. And I did. that it, anyone who actually listens to us enjoys the first episode. Yeah, I, I was really excited to do this, and I was really excited to hear the story. N now, not so much. Now, I feel like I'm just like, oh, my God, my heart is torn up. I just might. But, <laughs> but I I hope that it finds, like, comfort yeah. for somebody knowing that justice was served. Yeah, for sure. All right, well, that's all we got. <laughs> well, All right, yep. thanks for joining us on What a Nightmare. Yep, hope you get to listen to the next one. Good, Good night. night.